Hello, and welcome back to Millennial Tendencies with Rachel Sterling. I'm her voice of reason, Hugh. Before I forget, be sure to follow us at Millennial underscore Tendencies at Instagram and Twitter. Also, be sure to like, download, subscribe, leave a review of a five star would be very helpful. And guys, let me tell you, we have a heck of a show for you today with special guest, DJ, producer, you name it world traveler dj mugs is in the house well at least he's in his house and he's been kind enough to talk to us today about oh how he got to where he is as well as some of the stories along the way plus a little insight into how to keep everything even keel in a way shall we say now i know you guys are not here to listen to me talk so let's get right to it let's have rachel and mugs take it away Yay! So when you Yay. thank when you, ready, Blaine, I appreciate you, man. Hey, you know, hey. try my best. <laughs> Rachel told me she had a hacker over there. She just couldn't get in touch with you last night. She's like, I got a hacker. I'm gonna get him in the morning. And get this shit worked out. <laughs> hacker sounds so like so. I don't know. I feel so upper echelon saying hacker. Well, exactly. Early nineties at, at the you know, what I, you know what I call <laughs> you, Mugs? I call you my voice of reason. Because mm. you, as you know from our conversation last night, your girl can talk mm. a lot, a lot. So he's like, "Okay, wrap it up." <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's I think I'm having my coffee, so to me, it's still morning because I woke up kind of late because I was. Oh. So, um, mugs. Talk to me. Um, it's it's how's how's what's your how's your morning? Oh, my morning. Everything's good, man. I got up. Ah, uh, did my stretches, jumped in the sauna, hit the sauna right quick, hit the ice bath. Wow. And um, got me a coffee right here. Got your coffee. I see your sauna in the morning. Like you do the sauna and like Esteban, he has his sauna going. Would you yeah, guys all just like, do you get coordinating saunas there? Man, I didn't know he got one. I was going to tell him to get one and then I seen him. I was like, oh shit, you got a sauna. Because I was going to tell him it's the best thing I ever bought in my life. I'm jealous. It's the best I'm gift jealous. I ever got. I, I get up, put it on until yeah. about 210 degrees, get in there with the eucalyptus, mm. get 20 minutes. Spray? 20 spray minutes in there. Real? I, I pour it on the water. I pour, I pour it on the, I got the um, the oil. Oh, nice. Put it in the water. Nice. Put it on the rocks. Get in there 20 minutes to get your heart pumping really good. It's like a cardio workout as well. Sweat, jump in the ice pool. Boom. Then I'm up. Then I'm ready to go do my thing. He, we need a, we need to up our game. Just a, just a wee bit. A lot. A lot. I th I thought. I mean, I meditate in the morning. I, my sister was like, "What are you doing?" Because she Facetimed me, and it was like mid meditation. I'm like, what? And so I had my candles out, and I was just talking to her. And I realized, I'm like, let me blow these out so I don't Britney Spears the place. Because <laughs> unfortunately, it's it will be a big deal if I burn my place. <laughs> You know, did you see that video where she just so nonchalant? It's like, and, and I like, I burnt it down, but it's back. It doesn't matter now. And then she just keeps talking. I'm like, wait, what did you say? You just burnt your gym down. <laughs> she did burn a gym down. She's amazing. She's, She's amazing. I, I want to be, I want to be that level of wealth and and acceptance that it's like, oh, it happens. <laughs> I just built a Whoops. new one. Big Whoops. deal. I did it again. Did it again. But <laughs> that's killing. Well, thanks for talking to us. I'm really excited because this is my this is my first time um, 
interviewing someone that's not a not a comedian friend and then uh also i get to break out my new microphone this is sweet the first time that there's not going to be scratching because the microphone's hitting my hair and stuff like that because i talk with my hands a lot mm -hmm. super exciting so you've done a lot of stuff and it's really funny because i i have this habit of knowing people for years and years and years and not really understanding the full realm of what they do for a living. Right. So as I was doing some research on, cause I obviously I know you, you DJ and make music. What I was really, I really loved in your past interviews is how you were talking about the beginning of how you started DJing without all the equipment that they have now. Hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. When we started like, I started um, just DJing on one of those home turntable systems that had the, the cassette it built in. Right. And the radio, so it was about this thick. And I had one and just playing on that. And then um, I got another one. So I had one that was big and then one that was small. And it was janky. You really couldn't DJ on them, but I was figuring it out. I got a Radio Shack mixer from one of my friends. I think they were like 1999 back then. And um, I hooked it up, but I hooked it up backwards. I didn't know. And I was trying to, I was learning backwards. And then I just, you had to listen to the radio then. And like, just listen and be like, how did they do that? And you had to try to figure it out by just listening to the radio. So I finally learned how to hook my shit up, right? And then I would just go to clubs, certain Uncle Jam's Army, Radio Tron. I'd get on the trains or the buses and go to these spots and just be there. And that was kind of how you had to learn back in the days. You had to go, you had to show up and um, trying to just figure it out on the radio. So... We, we worked it out, though. I figured this shit out. What year was that? That was 84. 84. 84, DJing. Just on the, it was like some side shit I did. Um, That's amazing, though. Yeah, just doing like that and then just figuring it out, just getting better and better, then started doing backyard parties, house parties in um, East L.A. But, you know, it was like we'd make about 30, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, <clears throat> do two of those a week. What, uh, what, what year did you move to, like, turntables? Uh, probably around 86 to good turntables. Cause, um, I was going across the street, getting weed for my friends and they was, they was, um, they was, um, DJs and they was like, um, so I would just play on their turntables every day when I go over there and, um, I just got better than them in a couple of weeks. And it was like, you want to come play these house parties with us? And I was like, fuck it. Let me go check it out. And then I went to the house parties and I was like, okay, shit. There's girls. Look at this. <laughs> oh, it's a party. Oh, I want to do this. This is fun. So was that was that the um define like one of the defining factors of like this is what I want to do for a living? Weed and women? No, I, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. Not yet. I didn't know if I wanted to do that. I was just doing it for fun on the side, you know. Just and then um then I started getting into it a little bit more and started getting into the DJ contests, winning these DJ battles. Um, this one called a DMC battle. Right. It's like a world world DJ contest. So I got in that one in um eighty nine. And then um then I got into production after that. I have a question for oh yeah, go ahead. Oh I've got I've got a quick question because you know, the form of being a DJ has obviously shifted away from using the the turntables and has become more of a digital mm. game. Uh do you do you mm. feel like the art form that was the turntable style is kind of gonna disappear? I, there are a few of you. There are a few people that are still keeping it alive the best they can, but do you think that that kind of art form is going to be completely replaced going forward in 
You know what I think? I think it's going to get a resurgence. Just how just how these kids are finding the cassettes again and they're finding vinyl again. Right. I think they're going to find it again because there's actual skill involved, man. You can't just like find the records and buy the records. And we had to learn learn them, and we had to learn how to mix and learn how to control the crowd and and um, build our own sets on what we wanted to do. Now I just noticed these kids go and they um. They get their CD players and then they go to the club and they Shazam everything the DJ's playing. They can get the DJ set. Right. They can see what the crowd they can see what the crowd reacts off of. They can go out five nights in a row, Shazam every DJ set, go home, download the records for free, put them in the exact same set as those DJs that just killed the club, and then you're a DJ in a week. That's yeah. You couldn't even get into the you couldn't even get on the turntables when I was young. You had to be good. And if you wasn't, they was taking your shit. You know, you getting beat up. Right. And um, he was trying to figure out where you can get on and where you can DJ and trying to get to these clubs and get to these spots. It was dangerous. It was all gang banging and fools getting shot outside. So just to get there, to be around was a whole it was a whole nother thing. You know what I mean? It was an adventure. Oh, I can only, I can only imagine. I mean, but, you know, there wasn't no school. It's like now you got obviously, you know, I'm not mad at anybody, but you got YouTube, how to do this, how mm-hmm. to do that, how to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Um know your rights 101 so all your rights are there right you know we just it was on the job training we just got thrown in with the fucking sharks and had to learn to swim back then i mean that's all musicians yeah. for the most part when it comes down to it yeah well that's just the industry in general back then back yeah, it, then we had sink or swim it was a small underground culture just period you know so i had this kid in new york named sam sever he worked with mantronics he was like don't you want to you should start producing and i was like nah man i'm just gonna dj i'm good and then um, I was doing a party in Bell Gardens, in Bell Gardens Park in 87. And I had new, me and B-Real had a little group together. I knew all the Cypress boys. We were all together, but we wasn't Cypress Hill yet. Right. And I met, I met these two guys in, from Brooklyn, groups called 7A3. They were signed with Ice-T to Vendetta Records. So they came to play my party at this park and their DJ didn't show up. So I DJ for them. And they was like, hey, you want to DJ for us? We got four shows coming up with Ice-T. So... One was at Osco's. One was at the club where the Beverly Center used to be. This was like 87, I think. And um, so I got with them. We played those shows. And then um, we went into the studio a week later over to Delicious Vinyl off of Santa Monica up, up there with Matt Dyke and did um, a song called Mad Mad World for Colors. Then we got an album deal on Geffen. And I went to Philly and did the album. And... Um, and I didn't know I had I had ideas how to produce, but I didn't have a fucking clue. So making that record, <laughs> making that record taught me. I just sat back and I just watched and watched and watched. And I got a full four year college education in two months. Right. How to make albums, you know, so I just like watched and I go, I got it. Boom. Went and got my little equipment and started making music. And I sucked for about a year and a half. Everything sucked. And then one day it was like, boom, we hit it. And then from that day, from that song, me and B-Real did a song called Real Estate. Right. And I, we had a big-ass boombox, and I plugged the microphone right into the boombox and the drum machine into the boombox, and we would just go, one take. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. Wow. And after, we did, after, we did, <laughs> after we did that song, I don't know, it, that was the first song we did that sounded like a record. And I was like, damn, okay. And after that, it was on. Everything we did was good. Boom, boom, boom. And what was the moment where you're like, that's it. That, that was that moment where you're like, this is it. I've hit it. Like I've made, I, I've got to the, like a, a, the beginning of like this journey. Like, well, we knew, well, you know, we knew the song was good. Now we, we still, we went in and recorded some demos, 
Um, I had made the relationships already with Joe the Butcher. Joe the Butcher owned Roughhouse Records, who signed Cypress, Criss Cross, the Fugees, and all them. Right, right. He um he produced my first band, Seven Eight Three. Okay. That, so that's how I met him. Um, Seven Eight Three was there was three of us, and um, my homies lived in apartment Seven A in the, in Brooklyn, in East New York, in the Linden Project. So that's where the name came from. So I, I would send Joe the demos all the time because I had made my, you know, I knew him. So I'm boom, boom, sending him demos of shit we did. He's like, it's cool, it's cool. And then um, he offered us a deal for like 65000 And this kid named Dave Funkenklein at Hollywood Records that had just started Hollywood Records offered us a deal for 250000 And we, we was almost going to sign with Funkenklein to send. One day was like, nah, let's sign with Joe. I just had a better feeling we should sign with Joe. Right. And I'm like, you sure? That's like $200,000 more. He's like, yeah, I think so. So I was like, all right, let's do it. And I think it was the best move we ever made because that's where we needed to be. And Rough House was at, was signed through Sony, and Def Jam was at Sony. So what that meant for us was like a lot of the major labels didn't know how to work hip-hop then. It was such an underground music. Right. Um, <clears throat> that they had Def Jam records. So Def Jam knew how to work the streets and to work hip-hop. So us being signed at Sony the same time was a benefit for us because we had them in house. So they kind of just piggybacked off, piggybacked us off of everything that they was doing. Um, it does sound like you made the right choice then. Definitely. Definitely. So I have, my brother-in-law is like a huge fan and he gave me a list of, a list of questions. <laughs> so, Joshua Sheehan, thank you for these questions. There, you already hit a lot of them, which is I don't want. I'm like looking at this. Uh, if you got to pick three people you've collaborated with in the past to sit together for an hour and chop it up, what would the roundtable look like? Oh, three? Fuck! Wow, Jesus. Um, RZA from Wu Tang. I'll keep it easy. Um, Dr. Dre. And probably, let's go with the Edge from U two. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, he's a friend of mine. I did I did some stuff for U two um, back in the nineties. <laughs> back in the nineties, I mean, you can go for pretty much many decades there if you wanted to. But yeah, oh, that's cool though. That's that 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 must have been some kind of experience. It was because the record I did was with the Edge. It was the first time the Edge sang on anything. Yeah, but he kind of he kind of rapped. I I know the album bit. you're talking about. Yeah, he was kind of like, he sounded like De La Soul a little bit to me. Really simple, basic, but it was cool. He was a cool dude. So I got to hang out with them for a while. We did, I did, you know, a bunch of shows with them. DJ opened up some of the, some, one of their tours and DJs. And um, that was fun, man. That was a good time. Okay, so now we it have- was something, okay. something about music before all this technology, you know, it was kind of like, it was like a small community, you know? Only a few people did what we did. And um, there was a code of ethics. You had to be good. You, you couldn't be, you, you had to be original. You had to have an original sound, original look, original slang. Um, if you copied anybody's shit, you wasn't going to get accepted. You was going to get kicked off a stage. They was going to say you were whack. You was biting. You sucked. Mm. It wasn't going to let you into the fraternity. You know what I mean? So you had, to, you had to bring something to the culture back then. That was more for the <laughs> hip-hop culture, I'm guessing. Like, because... One, one hundred percent, yeah. Because you you see how the the studios or the the, the you know, oh, would just cycle as many people that sound the same for like, especially in the mid to late nineties. That pop, yeah, thing, pop, they, pop, pop music is even hip hop because the labels don't know no better. The labels are going to try to 
figure out a formula and then attach you to that formula. So that's their pop formula. So that already existed when we was coming up. That right. shit was there. Like they had, like the rap that was playing, they had MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice, Young MC. That's the shit that was on the radio. But the yep. shit we liked, Public Enemy, KRS-One, NWA, they wasn't playing that on the yeah, radio. Yeah. None of that was on the radio. So our whole culture was still underground. And like, that shit ain't going to last. That shit ain't going to be here. You know, I had a little bit of a cultural advantage because I grew up in New York. I moved to L.A. when I was 13, 14. Okay. But but I would go back to New York every summer for three months and I'd go back for Christmas and I'd bring shit back. I'd bring music back. I'd bring style, different fashion. Right. And you didn't, there was no just click on the internet and know what they was doing. So anytime yeah. I would bring <laughs> shit back, they was like, what's this? Where'd you get this? Nobody heard the music. They never seen the shoes. They never knew what that hat was, you know, so... Kind of like had a little, little bit of a, little, little bit of advantage then culturally. Oh yeah. What about like being white in hip hop? Is that anything from your career negatively or positively impacted by that? You had to be where I came from. You had to be extra good. You couldn't just be good as the dude there. You had to be twice as good. So twice as good because you're white. Yeah, I'm Italian. I grew up in Queens. Yeah, I had to be better. Yeah. Just the fact that there was already like there wasn't too many people who was Italian or that wasn't black, you know, doing this thing. So mm -hmm. and the ones that were were fucking cornballs. Right. <laughs> so you had, yeah. to, you know, you, you had to be ready to slap the shit out of someone and your skill just had to be on another level. So I just I've always had a good work, work ethic. And um, so I just knew I would just work hard and be better than all these motherfuckers. So. I just made sure I was dope. Anything I do, I just make sure I'm the best. And um, so I just come in and just kill it. And it was just undeniable. Motherfuckers get jealous and still want to talk shit, but it's all right. <laughs> Wait, how is scoring the movie Street Kings? I mean, what had to change about your normal creative process? <clears throat> well, Street Kings, I had did um, like six scenes for Training Day. David Ayers wrote that. So then David Ayers directed Street Kings, I think it was his first movie. Um, he grew up in L.A., white cat that grew up in L.A., in the Mexican community. So I worked with Graham Ravel, who's a big um, big score guy from Australia. Um, usually when I make music, I do my thing, how I do it, that's it. I don't answer to nobody, it's done. I, I call all the shots since day one. With fucking scoring a movie, <clears throat> I go in, the director loves it. The producer loves it. The studio's like, no, you got to change it. Oh, okay. no. So I, ch so I change it. Studio loves it. The producer don't like it. The director like it. I got to change it. Next time I change it, the director don't like it. Now the producer likes it. So I'm like, this is driving me fucking nuts. I can't do this shit. But what I said to myself, I go, you know what? I'm going to humble myself. This is, a new, this is a new place for me to go. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to learn. I'm going to act like it's my first day in the game and just, just do it. Um, so I did, got it done, but then I realized like this shit ain't for me. I need to do my thing. Half, half the time they, they were making the wrong calls. They don't know what's good, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, the studios, they're too disconnected from culture. Mm -hmm. So they should let the artist be the artist and let the artist do what they got to do. So I was like, I'm good. I'm going to fall back on this fucking movie shit with these people. The, the only time I'm going to do another, another score is if it's more like, an independent with a director, something more like um, 
like when um, Sofia Coppola got aired to do the Virgin Suicides. Right. You know, she was like, do your thing. Bring you, your style, everything you do about you. That's what I want. So. Makes complete I'm actually, sense. I'm actually working on something right now with David Lynch. to nice. shoot a thing called thing called The Black Goat. So. Ooh. It's a. Um, can't really go into it a lot, but no, 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 no. But should be done. It should be done in a, should be done in a few months. I think it's it's pretty um out there. Well, I'd imagine with him, it would be a little bit, little bit different. Oh yeah, the guy's my hero. Um, about your trip hop work, death space for your face. Does um, what does that genre give you as a creative that is different from your normal work? It's a trip that I, I used to spend a lot of time in England in the early 90s. And I was out there when like, all the Massive Attack movement started. And then Tricky came out of the Massive Attack movement. And then Bjork was there. I did a remix for Bjork at that time. And Portishead comes out of that. And a lot of the press in England was saying that my sound gave birth to the trip-hop sound. It was basically Muggs' sound with, with um, singers instead of rappers. Right. So I was like, I was like okay, cool. Let me check this out. So... I, I would go back to England a lot, and I ended up working with this girl out there named Ingrid Schroeder. Um, the guy who signed her signed George Michaels, <clears throat> did her record, did a bunch of stuff. And I dabbed into that over the times. I did the record called Dust. I did this record with Cross My Heart, Hope to Die. Um, I think I did the video. Oh, that's right. Fuck. Remember? Yeah, in San Diego. <laughs> I think, um, I think. In the U.S., I think in Europe, they're more acceptable of just artists being artistic and being way different and not falling into um, just not falling into just a cookie cutter yeah. where, where um, here it's a lot harder to push that kind of stuff through. There's a little bit of scenes here and there for it, but and the Internet's opened it up a bit more. But, you know, I like to experiment, man, and spread my wings and just do stuff I haven't done. I refuse to do the same record twice and do the same thing. Even if I know I can do it and it's easy and I can make money, that's boring. You know, it's like a painter painting the same fucking picture all the time because he knows he can get paid. I like to challenge yeah. my, I like to challenge myself and then <clears throat> live a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Always keep a foot outside of my comfort zone. And that's what keeps it interesting. And that's what gets my brain going. And that's what fucking drives me nuts. And then that's the fun. That's the fun about it. I mean, that's true artistry, like is pushing yourself. And as you say, you're never going to make the same album twice, which is huge. It's where you know, I can, I can, oh, I created, the, I, I created the formula, but I don't want to, I'd rather be abstract, you know? No. Oh, yeah. And surreal about everything. And, and a lot of that is kind of diving into the unknown and it's kind of, it's kind of being a bit vulnerable and a little scary sometimes because sometimes it might not have the commercial success that you know you could have had if you just did this, but I don't give a fuck. I was just I was just gonna say like Soul Assassins. So I I know SA Studio Soul Assassins. I know them from originally working with Estevan for photography, and then just kind of like it was this place where like there was a tattoo parlor and there was there's cars and there was like all this mm -hmm. stuff, and then you know, and then obviously there's the this label. So and um, when you Google it online, as I did, um, it says it's an art collective. So so. Where did the term Soul Assassin originate from? Um, it was back in 91. What it was, it started as a music production company. Um, soul is something that's eternal. Even through death, it's alive. And Assassin is Hashashin, which is an Arabic sect from the 
about the four, 13, 1400s where they would smoke hash, sheesh, and then go murder their, go, um, go to war and kill whoever they had to kill, right? Right. Damn. And I was like, that's kind of, that's like us. <laughs> we smoking weed and we'll go get you and we over here, you know what I'm saying? So that's just the, that's just the name we use. And, and I'm, in, I was in, I'm in the rock and roll. I grew up with rock and roll. Like I grew up with blues and I grew up with like Zeppelin and the Doors and Black Sabbath. So all that kind of rock and roll stuff and all that imagery, it's always inspired me a lot. You know, I grew up, um, my uncle was my roommate when I was little and he had eight track tapes, velvet posters, black lights, incense, beads, smoking weed. You know, I was like five, six. Sounds like a mom. So, yeah. So. <laughs> You know, so, so um, the group started to grow. So at that point, blowing up, we're like one of the biggest bands in the world. And I'm hiring photographers, giving them their first jobs. And when it was, when I would go ask them to do a photo shoot for me again, they was like 50 G's. I'm like, 50 G's, motherfucker. I gave you your job. Mm. And that's why you even got a career. Mm -hmm. There's some directors. I gave them their first videos. Um <clears throat> You know, some, and then they end up going making movies and they never call and say, hey, can we get some music for the soundtrack or do you want to do this for us? So I got to the point I was like, fuck everybody. Uh. Mm -hmm. um, we're just going to create, we got our own crew. We're going to create our own economy. We're going to take care of each other. We're just going to hire each other and pay each other. Mm -hmm. Fuck all these motherfuckers because they don't care. We're just a stepping stone for them. And at that time, that's kind of what, that's when it happened. So <clears throat> I would, um, Esteban did, when, when I, you know, when we first met, he didn't take pictures. He started taking pictures later. But once he got really good, I was like, you're going to take the pictures. Um, just take the pictures. You got a camera. You know, I was noticing these Italian photographers would come and take these fucking pictures and they would shoot for like 10 minutes and go get their $40,000. And I'm like, you should get the money, my G. Yeah. So, right? so at that point, we just kept everything in house and just created our own economy. And, you know, all my friends are ultra successful that we brought up both artistically and monetarily speaking. So you you're know, each other's uh, mentors. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I always think that's super important because a lot of a lot of times people think that your mentor has to be your mentor has to be someone that's, you know, unreachable or super famous or, you know what I mean? Like they it can really just be your group that you yeah, man, you learn know, from each other and you come up together and, you know. You got, you're you're, you're like-minded, you have the same goals and the same challenges, um, but at the same time you're different and you push each other and you stretch each other to fucking grow and you make each other mad, but you, 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 gotta, <laughs> you, you gotta stretch, you gotta stretch each other, you gotta grow, you can't fucking just find something that you're successful at and just stay right there and stay put, because that shit'll burn out eventually. And then you ain't gonna be happy, you ain't gonna have fun, so. I think we're all each other's fucking, we push each other hard. Yeah. Well, that's good though. Um, I have so many questions. Oh. <laughs> uh, so uh, you stepped away from Cypress Hill production for a bit. Uh, talk to me about the process and headspace and your return. Well, what happened was mom, I had my daughter and then I got full custody of her mm -hmm. and she was like three. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> the fuck do I do, man? Like, I don't have family in LA. It was just me. Yeah. And I had full custody of this little three-year-old. So I had to stop touring because I was like, I'm going to take care of this child. And um, 
you know, I used to watch VH1 back in the days, and every every motherfucker on there, the biggest regret they had, all of them, was not raising their kids and not having a relationship with their kids, right? So I was like, I'm gonna raise my kid. Um, I made it. I've always invested my money, right, and everything when I was young. I never partied. I never went out. I stayed in the studio and worked. So I was good with money. So I was yeah. like, okay, I'm gonna take care of my kid. And then um, I produced all the records except for one. Um, Be real, produced that one. And then I, and then you know, everybody, you know, shit changes. Everybody's busy. Everybody's got their lives. Everybody does whatever. So we came back on the last one we released called Elephants on Acid about two years ago. I think we dropped it. And then what I wanted to create with that was, um, I wanted you to feel like you was on drugs without being on drugs. Mm. You know, more, it was like an Alice in Wonderland adventure, going back to that childhood creativity, that space where there was um, there was no rules and everything that you could think is possible is possible. You know, there's no dogma. Um, and so that's the headspace I went into making that record. When you were touring with Cypress Hill, what place stands out most in your memory? Like going to Europe the first times, just like first time pulling up in Rome and the first time pulling up in Paris and the first time like going to these like Estonia and these little Eastern Bloc little countries that broke off from the Soviet Union because it was just a mad culture shock and it was before the internet and it was before world phones and it was before the mm -hmm. Euro, you know, so you're going there and you have to change your money every day and the food sucked and shit sucked. But, and then once you realize, you talk to these people that we're just the same. Once you get past the language, it's like, we're the same. Everybody wants the same shit. Everything they pump, they pump up on the news, ain't none of that shit real. So I was like, okay, this is dope. I want to travel more now. <laughs> and, and you know, just... for about for about ten years, twelve years, I seen I, I traveled the world with Cyprus, but I didn't see nothing. It was just yeah. touring bus touring, you know. Yeah. And um, but but since then, now I travel. Now I make sure I see everything. Even if I go on tour, I don't go for a day and leave. I'll stay for three or four days in the city. I'll do my work and then I'll go and explore after that wherever I go. Gumball. Yeah. So you did the gumball. Tell us tell us what that was and, and why did you decide to enter and what did you get out of it? Gumball's like um you go three thousand miles in five days. First time we did it was LA to LA to Miami was the first time. Then we went from like London to Istanbul and um fuck. All kinds of I did it like six times. Oh wow. But what? um yeah. It's, in it's, your own car? No, um, <laughs> I wouldn't bring my car. Max, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of blessed because the guy who started it, Maximilian, he, um, he was a fan of mine growing up. So he was like, look, I want you on the gumball. You don't got to pay. Here's, I'll get you a car. I just need you to DJ the parties. And I'm cool. So he, he'd get us a party. He'd get us a car. We'd have the hotels, food. And, um, you know, just rolling. It's like a rally. So it's really not a race. So... You'd find your homies and we'd roll with all the homies would all roll and we'd all pull over and get gas together and hang out and eat and just smash out, get to the next city party. And um, it's kind of like an adventure for some of these really, really rich motherfuckers because they sit in their offices all day. They really don't get out, get to go out. They really don't have these, no challenges or nothing. You know, it's almost like the movie The Game for them. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> by the third, you know, Max will start doing little things to fuck with their heads. And you start seeing who breaks down, who cries, you know. So the first day you might drive 14 hours 
might be like, I don't know, 700 miles, 600 miles. Then you get to the next city, you, um, you eat, you go party. After the party's done, you get back to your room and there's a little card under the, under the door. Now it's like 4.30 in the morning. There's a little card under your door that says, hey, gumballers, I hope you had a good night. Um, we leave at 7 for a 200-mile drive for lunch to where lunch is. So then you get in your car, you drive at 7, you get to wherever that is, and then you have lunch and they give you another car to where you're going. After about the third day, these motherfuckers were breaking down. They were crying. <laughs> Me and Esteban, we're laughing because we've been on tour for 20 years, so we're used to this. We're used yeah. to not sleeping and just going and going and going and going. It's funny watching some of these dudes, but I made, I made some great friends, you know, and it's like whenever you go through something like that with anybody, you know, you like, you, you build a bond with people because it's mm -hmm. something you share, you know, and it's, it's like this experience, you know, so... Anybody I've been on the gumball with, um, I'm still friends with to these days. We still talk. Oh, How many tickets did you get? I only got two. Only two? Yeah. That's amazing. But I've seen some shit happen. I've seen fools get their cars taken from them, get locked yeah. up because they were going about 170 miles an hour. You know, I've seen fools crash their cars. And, um, I, and then a lot of times for lunch, we'll go on racetracks. So you can just take your car on a racetrack, but... Some of these dudes don't know if, if you rent a car, the insurance doesn't cover it on a racetrack. So I've seen fools smash up oh, $250,000 no. $250, cars against the wall. Mm. Smash. Oh. They're so paid. They just leave it and get another one. Oh, I mean, I we're talking about sultans from Brunei. Yeah. I mean, Saudi Arabian billionaires, like Russian billionaires with their own little hit squad following them in another car. It's really just a rich man's little adventure. And, yeah. then, there's, and then there's us. It's me, Esteban, Tony Hawk, um, the guys from the, they're, they're like the jackass of Europe. Oh, There's I like know three, those guys. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Pritchard, yep. Pritchard and, um, and um, I forgot his partner's name, Dylan, I think. Yes. Oh, what was it? What was their yeah. show? Oh, right. I, I was so living those, out there when it was, when it just started up. Uh, yeah. Those guys are cool as hell. So we, you know, we hang out and drink every night and wild out and have fun, man. And. Get into the car the next day, still fucking drunk, and start <laughs> driving in the car drunk again. Text. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun, man. That oh, was a good time doing this shit. Dirty Sanchez was the show. Dirty Sanchez, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're oh my gosh, you were on that show. My friend Dayton is. Dayton. I have a skateboard that came out with forty, and he came out here with uh, one of the owners of the skateboard company, and we he introduced me to that dirty. Sanchez show, and it was the most scary thing I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, they're fools! <laughs> they are fools, man. Like, yo, sh I remember we was in we was in Monaco, and we took this yacht to this yacht. <laughs> the yacht had its own yacht, so we get on there. And it's <laughs> some some German billionaire. He ended up being Kim dot com, who's the guy who owned like um, he's from New Zealand. He had like um, uh, we send it. I think the mm -hmm. government's trying to shut him down. We get on this yacht, we're standing, and then the helicopter comes, and then I see the pool, this, 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 the top of the pool close. All the water go out of the pool. The helicopter lands on the pool. Everybody gets out. The helicopter leaves. Then the water comes back into the pool. And I was like, these motherfuckers are on another level. Dudes with Russian securities with AKs on, this, on the yachts. It's, it's uh, like a lot of James kind of scary. <laughs> it's, it's like a lot of James Bond money out there. Like These dudes are on another level, you know? Yep. When then I come up... And when they, we're in Monaco when they're getting like a hundred bottles of champagne, a hundred bottles delivered to the table, you know, 
You think these these fools think they're ballers out here grabbing five bottles. I'm like, <laughs> you don't even know what balling is, man. Amazing. What? Um, okay, so Cypress Hill music is most, that's what most people associate with you. Um, to someone listening now that knows Cypress Hill, like the younger generation, everything, but might not be familiar with everything that you've done. Uh, what's the album of yours that you think that you'd like them to listen to? Like, what do you think is your most, what do you believe is your most quintessential work? I don't know, man. I, I know this though. I know that for me, just the first album was like just pretty much our whole lives. Everything we were living, everything we were going through um, was all in that, that first album. It was like three years to make, you know, so all of everything we've done and lived and all of our experiences were kind of in that record. And it was still, we were still broke. We were still hanging out with each other every day. That was before the managers. That was before the lawyer. That was before the fucking, before everything. You know what I mean? So that played, that record always holds a special place in my heart. Because then like the second album when we did, our shit blew up so quick. The first <laughs> album, the first album I did in three years, the second album I did in four weeks. Wow. Oh, wow. Because we, they said they needed it. We need this record for, um, for Christmas season. We need, we need this shit done. And I was like, oh, okay, fuck. So I went in and, just we did it fast, like in a month we finished it, turned it in, and then the shit blew up even bigger. And I was like, man, fuck this. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, because once you, you know, there's always once you blow up, then people start talking shit, right? There's always that balance, mm -hmm. counterbalance with everything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, we're getting on bigger tours, bigger festivals, and then I was like, man, fuck this. I'm never rushing a record again. I'm taking my time, and I'm not make, I'm not giving them a commercial single ever again. Mm -hmm. So I went to the next album and gave him no commercial singles on purpose. And I made a couple, but I never turned them, I never turned them in. I don't want to make the darkest record I can make right now. <laughs> um, if you had to guesstimate how many pounds of weed total has Cypress Hill smoked collectively? Fuck. Hundreds. Hundreds. Me and B-Rill, and and like, go back to 92, we used to just buy a pound at a time. We just go half on a pound. There was about five grand a pound back then. We would just buy a pound and buy the, every week, every whatever. We would just buy pounds of weed all the time. But by now, <laughs> by now, it's got to be at least a fucking hundred pounds of weed. <laughs> be real alone probably smoked a hundred pounds. Of I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, um, did we ask this one? Well, I have the, the, the Cypress Hill origin story told that one. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. So um, I um, I was in Bell Gardens. I had a homeboy, and I was DJing. But my homeboy had a cousin who said he knew this other DJ. So I was like, hey, you guys should, you guys should hook up. And I was like, all right, whatever. So I went to the club called the Capri. It was on Long Beach in, like, Manchester or Firestone. Met the homeboy over there, Julio. And then about... A month later, Julio's like, yo, I got these rappers from Southgate. Can I bring them over? My cassette player broke. We want to record this demo. Can we use your cassette player? And I was like, yeah, pull up. So he came through, and he came through with um, Sendog's brother, Mellow Man, Be Real, mm -hmm. the kid T Tyrone from Funk Dubious, and about five other kids from Cypress Block, just from the neighborhood. And um, so Sendog and his brother, Mellow Man Ace, had a group, and Julio was the DJ, and me and Be Real had a group. And... The whole group was called DBX, but there was like three groups in the group. Hmm. And um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I went and um, so then I met the 783 guys 
Okay, boom. So when I was doing the song for the movie Colors, like I told you earlier, Mad Mad World mm-hmm. in the Delicious Vinyl Studios, I would tell them, hey, come with me every place so we can learn this music business and see what this shit's about. Come, come to Hollywood with me. Because we never came to Hollywood. We was like, man, we thought Hollywood was just fucking some weirdo shit. You know what I mean? Like, it we is. ain't going to Hollywood. That's, <laughs> if you were Hollywood, you were played out, you know, some gay shit. And, you know, get the fuck out of here with that shit. So Mello came, came to the studio with me. And I told um, the guys from the Delicious Vinyl, I go, he raps. And they was like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Then I go, he raps in Spanish. And I looked at him and I seen their eyes go, ching, ching. Ah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But the thing was, he didn't rap, he didn't rap in Spanish. Only his brother, only Sin did. So oh. he went home. He, started, he, wrote, he wrote a song. It took him three days, but his mom helped him. We did, <laughs> we did the demo at my house. Just again with the big radio, just plugging the fucking microphone into the radio, pushing play on one cassette player and record on the other one. And then um, he did Mentirosa, not Mentirosa, he did um, the shit called Mas Pingon, which got released on Delicious Vinyl as a single. Uh-huh. Mas Pingon, let's do this. And um, <laughs> so he got put on and then, then he got signed to Capital from there. Oh, wow. And during that time is when we started Cypress Hill oh. as a group. Because now since, since, since Rhyming Partner, because they were in a group, was gone. So him and B-Real got together. So us three started Cypress Hill, which was basically the name of our block where we hung out. Nice. Fitting name. Fitting yeah. there. Yeah. Right? There, yeah. There I mean. Name. We didn't have to think too hard for that one. It's still an <laughs> iconic the pot, name. The, the, the potheads had a genius idea. Oh, <laughs> you guys just looked up like, there you go. Perfect. Oh, no. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> what would your current self say to your old self? You could go back in time and your old self is producing the first album. Uh, what would you say to yourself? I would, oh, just overall, I would be, be patient, young man. Everything's going to work itself out. Just trust. Don't be so fucking aggressive. You don't got to slap the shit out of everybody. Just be patient. Because we, we came into the game aggressive. It, we were just aggressive and mad, you know, just coming from where we came from. Just, and you know, it worked for us. And there was certain times when I could look back and go, oh, maybe that was not a good move at that time. And that wasn't a good move. And I don't regret none of it at all. But, you know, that's what my older self would have said. Just be patient and just, you know, sometimes the best move, the best play is just to do nothing and just wait it out and let it figure itself out. You know what I mean? You don't got to try mm-hmm. to make anything happen because you feel like you need to do. But that's just coming from a young man's perspective and that, that doesn't have the wisdom and the experience to tap into to know what that move was, you know? Mm-hmm. So learned a lot of shit over the last 20 years. Do you, how do you feel about like the, I, I mean, I know that I, I'm, we've, we've all just grown up so much because since the nineties, but like you were saying, have patience. You're, um, are you like everyone else? I believe in like just having faith and manifesting what you want. You see, to me, you see, I, I love listening to you talk about your work ethic because it's strong, but yet there's still an element of, um, you know, I did the work and then you just let the rest come to you, which is just such a a powerful thing. It's, I love watching you talk, watching all your clips where you're talking about your work ethic because it's not, it seems very balanced. And it right. seems like you just always, you showed up, you did the work aggressively, but still did the work. <laughs> but there, there seems to be an overwhelming amount of faith that, you know, you knew, you knew that you did what you did, what you did. So now you just wait. Yeah, I learned, I didn't know my superpowers back then, you know? I didn't learn, I didn't know how to tap into the, my powers. But then once I realized my powers, 
and I learned to trust in them that mm-hmm. I just got way more powerful at everything and everything just falls into place. Like basically everything I want, I get mm-hmm. and everything. Sometimes it doesn't happen exactly how you wanted it, but when you trust it, it happens just mm-hmm. sometimes not at the exact time you want or the exact way. But if you let the process happen and you, all you could do is just keep making yourself take care of your body, take care of your mind. You know what I mean? Stay on your meditation, eat, eat good and just keep doing your thing. Shit will fall into place, you know? So I learned to trust. I learned to trust that a lot of times instead of trying to squeeze the circle into the square, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's necessary to do that, but you got to know when to do that. But yeah, I definitely learned to trust that and just be easy with things and everything comes, man. It does. It definitely does. I think that's a, one of the things with just being in entertain, any aspect of the entertainment industry, especially when you're young, there, you know, there's some people that, want all the stuff but they're not sure how to do the work and you, have, the, to, you, you have, have to do the work you know yeah, you have to have the right intent intent attached to this man because if, if you ain't doing things for the right reasons and the intent ain't there and you don't have the right vision and you can't see the ending before you start you're gonna you might not get there you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i always make sure i always tell people what's the end look like when they start any journey what's the end look like well i'm not sure well how are you going to get there you need to know exactly what it's going to look like when you get to where you want to get so start visualizing that, picture that. Mm-hmm. And, then w- and what's the intent, you know? Is it just for your ego? Is it just for money? Okay. And if that's it, then that's it. But know what it is and be sure of it and be 100%. Because if you're not 100%, things ain't going to happen the way you want. So No, they're not. You know, the power of intent is powerful. It definitely is. Well, that's, I think, I, those are the end of my questions. And okay. I wanted to thank, thank you for... Um, uh, bearing with me while we try to All figure good. out the technology last night and this morning. <laughs> sure, we got it. We weren't going to be we defeated by the computer. Nope. <laughs> we got this. It had us on the ropes, though. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> we, we did it. We th- I appreciate you guys. Thanks for your time. Oh, appreciate you. Thanks thank for having you. me. Oh, thank you for being Absolutely. on. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. Right. Have a good one, man. If you have any help in the future, holler. I will do. I will. Happy All Mother's right. Day. Happy Mother's Happy Day. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Bye-bye, hon. Bye, guys. Hello. Hello. That was exciting. That was great. Well done. How'd you feel? Very exciting. Uh, It was great. I'm really happy that uh, my brother-in-law wrote those questions. Okay, Joshua Sheehan, my brother-in-law. Thank you for like helping me sort out. Because other, I mean, I would have just been like, I would have just let him just talk randomly. (laughs) Because he's so. I love listening to him talk. No, he had some great stories. There's, you know, it. It was nice to have those insights that you had and. Like I, yeah. I obviously had some questions myself. Oh, sorry. Did I talk? No, 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 no. I, no. I got, I got mine. Like I wanted to know what his take on the actual spinning of records. Like the, you know, using turntables has kind of gone away. Like, mm. and like, it's kind of coming back though. It is. Well, people are playing records more often, but the art form, like there was, there was well, such a movement of the '90s, like where, yeah. where he started to, you know, the mid 2000s. I feel like. Um, like to play, if we were a DJ, to play, to be able to play vinyl, like only vinyl, is kind of like wizardry. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're kind of an upper echelon DJ if you can do the vinyl versus um, versus just like Point computer, click. like push, push the computer. Not that it's all easy. I have plenty of friends that are DJs. I'm not saying it's super easy. I cannot do it. But, you know, um, like I used to 
you know, I was friends with, with AM and I just used to love watching him do his thing with Travis and just, you know, they're just going back and forth. It was super fun. Or just watching, you know, my friend Hallie, DJ Ivy, she, she does a vinyl set and it's, it's really fun. It's just, it's just fun to watch because there's so much, you know, there's always something happening. Right. With the, with all that stuff. And then, but that's wild. I I love the, the idea of doing the work he did with a cassette tape. Yeah. And now, um, in this day and age where we think we need all this stuff to be creative. You don't. You just need a will to be creative. Yeah. No, he's, he's right on when it comes to that. When he's talking, the way he was talking about things about, you know, patience and everything else like that, it's true. I wish I was a younger man hearing that, to be honest mm, with you, oh gosh, instead yeah. of like a middle-aged man hearing that. But I still have to, you know, buy in. Like, I do buy into that, that patience is a a virtue that everyone needs and especially when it comes to the business that we're in you have to, and we're yeah. trying to do it's it's it doesn't always fall the way you want it to and no and- but, but uh, you know but i i mean i for myself like everything has always kind of come after the other i've had people at you know there's a lot there's a point in my career that i don't really like to make a big deal out of what i did through the 90s which is to pose nude and stuff like that um, everyone says, well, if you could take it back, would you do it? Would you not do it? And I, I, some, I mean, I think there was a period in my time when it really like it affected me when someone would bring it up more than it does now. And I would say, I would think yes. But then now that I'm older, absolutely not. I wouldn't be able to have a conversation with mugs today if I hadn't done all, all that work before, because it's from that, that, Estevan and Cartoon knew my work, my nude work, <laughs> um, and in, invited me to do a photo shoot for Source Magazine. That 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 one job created that so many other opportunities. My work ethic came from that because, um, you know, when you when you're young and you have to take care of yourself, you just you work. You know, and like if you don't work, you don't eat if you don't work. So. Um, it's just, you know, I, I wish I wish I too had had someone to say that when I just be patient, it'll all happen because I just want it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I understood what he said when you're like, you're in your 20s or your thir- early 30s and you're just like hitting it so aggressive because, you know, you feel like I have to get it all now. Yeah. Now, 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 you know. It, uh, yeah, people are still like that. They haven't quite co- figured out the patient side of things, and you know. I still fig- can't figure. Out. I mean, I, I'm at this point now um, where I I have I say it all the time. It is what it is, and it doesn't mean I'm complacent. It just means it is what it is. I, there's just shit I can't. You can't control. control. Nope. I don't want to control. And which is hard because I am naturally by nature a control freak. What? No, no. I did not know this. <laughs> so, I'm like, yeah, I'm not learning cool. something new. Last night I was I was I was I was up his butt last night. So I was like, can we do can we just do a test right now? Can we just do a test right now? Because I didn't want to go through all, you know, an hour of like trying to figure out how to work the test. You technology. mean exactly what we went through, but it all worked. Exactly out. what we went through. Um and uh, I'm sure he was probably like, what is with her? Because I probably think, he, you know what I mean? Like every time he's come in contact with me, it's like a casual setting. So I'm not like super aggro about stuff. <laughs> so now I'm just like all about the work. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to send this to you. And this, I was just like, I'm like, by the way, I'm so sorry. I'm very A-type personality, a.k.a. annoying, um, also known as 
zero chill. <laughs> but I, I don't think. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I was uh, when you were texting me last night about this. I was like, well, it'll happen. That's yeah. where I was at. In my I didn't expect you to respond. I was just. I like, just thought you'd see it when you woke up. Well, when I did see this wake up, and I, I appreciate him being like. I'm I'm here. I'm good. Everything else like that. So mugs. Thank oh, you. Oh, he's for so that. calm and wonderful. So thank you for that. And we were able to just piece it together, and it kind of quick thinking is yeah. uh, kind of what, what what I'm here for. There are no problems, only solutions. And that's why you are my voice of reason. Yes. And it's a one. It's a match made in heaven. Oh, you know. Wait, I don't know if that's the case, but you know, I think ma- so. made somewhere. I think, so. I think so. Like if you were as reactive as I can be. Mm-mm. I would, you would have left me a long time ago. Oh, oh yeah. You <laughs> uh, you, I would say you are fortunate that I am extremely patient in life when it comes yes. down to things. So, you know, today was, uh, you know, it is what it is. Like it's Mother's Day. My mother went to Vegas. She wanted the gift for Mother's Day. She wanted to be left the fuck alone. Well, that's a good one. Which is, I always thought that was super weird because I, like, I never, we never had to like really stress out about Mother's Day because she's like, we just leave her alone for two days and she's fine. Um, uh, <laughs> but then I, as I'm older, I'm like, oh gosh, if I had kids, that's definitely what I want. I mean, nobody speak to me for two days. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's call it. We can call we, it. We can we, go we... on to. I'm. I have some major. I, I have some major um, gardening to do today. Oh, is that what you're getting up to mm-hmm. today? Mm-hmm. I've meditated. I talked to my mom. I talked to my whole family. Um, making baked yams for my dog because she is demanding different food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, is it not? She won't. Yeah, she fancy. won't eat it. She'll smell it and then go sit on her bed and just like wait. So that's a problem. Um, so yeah. So now for me, I'm going to go uh, get some heavy gardening on. All right. Well, you enjoy the gardening. I'm going to sit in my box of life. That is my. Do I bedroom. need to make you a little garden thing? Uh, I'm. I'm. Do you have a balcony? Do you have a balcony? And I, I, I do, but it's, it's, the balcony's a mess. I have to fix the balcony. <gasps> oh my gosh! No, project. No, no, no. no, no. Project. Uh, all right. Project, project. Project. I'll get on it. How's that sound? Oh my god! I'm gonna plant you a little, a little starter one. Oh, I don't. I don't, little... let's, 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 I don't want to kill any more plants. Let's. let's... It's easy. Oh, it's never easy. Whatever. Just spray them at night. Okay. All right. Just keep them moist. No, keep them moist. No. Oh. <laughs> Damn it! I just wanted to make you say something gross. Yeah. You said moist. We did. Sorry, ladies. Sorry. Bye. Well, Bye, everyone, everyone is like, bye. Have a good one. Bye.